Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey everybody, it's Mike. February has been a crazy, crazy month both in terms of the weather and in other things that have been happening, as I'm sure it has been for you. And so I'm still trying to get some scheduling worked out for my March episodes. We will have Richard Harrison on, uh, trying to get a date finalized with him. We're going to have Will Kruger come on, and he'll be talking about 16 Miles to Seven Lakes. So I'm not quite sure what the playing order is going to be for the next couple of episodes. But of course, when they get released, they get released, and you'll be the first to know. So... As you listen to the interview with Jerry Candestin, I hope you enjoy it and stay tuned for whatever the next episode's going to be. Okay, here we go. The first guest of the evening is truly a poet. He's an artist. He is a friend and an inspiration to anyone who I think who has ever played the guitar uh, or tried to write poetry. Would you please welcome Gordon Lightfoot? at the doorway, my head bowed in my hands, not knowing where to sit, not knowing where I stand. My father looms above me, for him there is no rest. My mother's arms enfold me and hold me to her breast. They say you've been out wandering, they say you've traveled far. Sit down, young stranger, and tell us who you are. This is Carefree Highway Revisited, the show that celebrates Gordon Lightfoot's music song by song, a proud member of the That's Not Canon podcast network. I'm your host, Mike Messner, and with me today is a fellow Lightfoot fan from Montreal, Quebec, Jerry Candiston. Jerry, welcome to Carefree Highway Revisited. Thank you very much for inviting me. Well, how did you get into Lightfoot's music originally? That's my hazing question that I have for all my new guests. The World's Fair, Expo 67, was held in Montreal in 1967, and there had been one song that I remember being played on the radio called Spin, 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 and I was at the Canadian Pavilion one afternoon with, with friends and stumbled upon someone named Gordon Lightfoot. I seem to remember Spin, 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 so we stayed and watched the show. That was 1967, probably August. In 1968, I saw him in a small Montreal coffee house known as the New Penelope Cafe, which is long gone. Mm -hmm. And by, I would say, end of 1968, I was smitten. And it's been uphill ever since. That's fantastic. So you really saw him very much in his own backyard in yes. Montreal and then I guess in Toronto yeah. after that. And you've stayed a fan ever since. And what is it that you enjoy most about his music generally? His words, his ability to capture Mother Nature, his ability to capture the one-on-one -on -one relationship, and the music, and his magic voice. Yeah, that pretty much says it all right there. You talked about seeing him at the World's Fair in 67. Have you seen him in any other concert situations? Maybe 30 or 40 times I've mm -hmm. seen Gordon in Montreal, every time he's played Montreal, I just saw him 
last August. He was a little frail, but he still got a standing ovation from everyone, and there were tears in most of our eyes when he came on. I've seen him in Toronto at Massey Hall. I've seen him in U.S. cities. I've had the joy of attending a charity event at the Grant Hamilton Recording Studio where Gordon recorded most of his late 70s and 80s albums. There was a charitable event, and I was one of a lucky 12 people to sit in the studio and just chat with Gordon and his band members while they played songs and took requests and talked about their guitars and their strings and their bass guitars. It was terrific. That's fantastic. And then you and I had corresponded a little bit about you having met him and spent a little bit of time with him. Can you tell us a little bit about how that went? I first met him when I was at McGill University and worked for the radio station as an activity and had a backstage pass and went and interviewed him in 1969 or 1970, forget. And I've uh, somehow managed to correspond and keep in touch with his various managers. And I, I always get backstage passes. And as I say, I met him and spent three, four hours with him at the recording studio uh, that night. I've met him at charitable events. He's a very, very well-spoken, back-home type of guy. There's no uh, inhibitions. He's not trying to put on airs. He's just a very, very nice guy. He engages in any conversation, uh, loves to talk about his music. He's just a lovely guy. You know, a lot of people have said that Lightfoot doesn't radiate celebrity in a way that other musicians of his generation maybe do, either deliberately or they just have that aura, and that Lightfoot really is non-pretentious in that. It sounds like that's a sentiment that you would agree with. He's just a back-home Canadian boy who was brought up in a small town and had a talent and took it to the upper limits. But when you talk to him, he'll, he'll talk to you about anything. He engages. Uh, he's, he's very forthright and forthcoming. Just a nice guy. Well, today we're talking about Sit Down, Young Stranger. And it's one that I heard him perform at the Mountain Winery in Saratoga, California, not long after I got married. And I have my own reasons for liking it, but why did you want to talk about it in particular today, Jerry? Well, it was originally the title of his first Warner Brother reprise album, which for him was an important milestone. Gordon had had Bob Dylan, Peter, Paul, and Mary's manager, Albert Grossman, and Grossman negotiated him away from United Artists because they didn't feel that he got enough U.S. airplay off of United Artists. So after five albums with United Artists, this was his big breakthrough. He was paid a million dollar signing bonus, which in those days was unprecedented. And this was going to be his breakthrough album. In fact, it, it was. His title tune was Sit Down, Young Stranger. And I can see why. It was a very subtle anti-war song representative of the generation gap that had divided America at that point. And he thought that that would be the title. I was surprised that they never released that song as the single on the album. They they released me and Bobby McGee, and uh, later, if you could read my mind, when it went from a deep cut on the album to a top five song that made them change the title of the album. But I always loved Sit Down and Stranger. I just thought it, it 
resonated so beautifully. It was a subtle protest song. Several years before, Gordon had written and released Black Day in July, and he thought that was going to be his U.S. breakthrough single. It was highly political, and many of the U.S. radio stations refused to play it because of the sensitivities of the Detroit to Watts riots at the, at the time. So this was a much more uh, subdued approach. As a Canadian, he didn't feel that it was his place to preach politics in a country that he didn't live in. And he was always very deferential to the U.S. in general and, and the record market in particular. And he was taught a bad lesson, I think, by Black Day in July. So this was a protest song. It was clearly anti-war. It was clearly representative of the terrible generation gap that developed in the U.S. Uh, because of the Vietnam War. And that's what it's about. Yeah, it is a protest song. There's no doubt about that. But it's as much about the generation gap and the relationship between parents and children yes. as it is about anything political. It's more really of a sociological song uh, yep. than a political one. I'll talk in a minute about his attitude towards talking about American issues from a Canadian perspective. But I see it as being in the same league with Cat Stevens's father and son, where you have these two male figures or these two people and they're talking to each other that but they might as well be talking past each other because you don't really hear a whole lot of really joint statements. There's a little bit more connection between the parents and the kid in Sit Down Young Stranger, but not by much. Do you have any anecdotal stories about the song at all, Jerry? Well, I've seen him play it live, uh, I don't know, maybe three, four times, I'm sure. I've always liked the words that he chose when they say, they say you've been out wandering, they say you've traveled far, sit down, young stranger, and tell us who you are. When you listen to how those words hit you, it's clear that there's this generation gap partly over war, partly over everything. He's kind of lost as the the youth in that song. He doesn't know where he's going. You know, it, it's not necessarily the youth is right and the old people are wrong. It's, gee, I'm young and maybe I don't know what's going on. It's, it's just a fascinating set of lyrics. It really is. And I like the fact that it's sympathetic to both the parents and to the child. Yeah, It's yeah. not a song where you say, oh, go on, Gordon, tell yeah. them all, saw it off. And it's not saying to the parents, okay, well, you, if you were at Kent State, you'd get what you deserved or something like that. So it's really lovingly done. And mm -hmm. it, especially at that particular time when emotions were so high, it takes a certain level of sensitivity to write a song like that. What to you is the best time or setting to listen to this? I mean, could you listen to this at any time or is there one particular time or place or season or whatever that your mind goes when you're listening to this? I always say, what's my favorite Gordon Lightfoot song? And I do have favorites, but I say it's the one I'm listening to at the time. <laughs> same thing. When's the best place or time to listen to Sit Down Young Stranger? I guess the answer is whenever I hear it. I can, it can be in my car, driving to the office, driving home, driving on a trip. It could be in my living room. It could be through headphones and bed at night. No matter when it is, I like the song. I mean, I love all this music. He's, he's had a profound effect on me. Uh, but this song in particular stands out. 
Yeah, I don't know that there's a particular place for me, but it would be during the daytime. I always think of this as being something where he's coming home in the late morning or the early afternoon Mm -hmm. and they're having this conversation. So it's not dusk, but it's not like it's eight o'clock in the morning and hey, I'm going to wake you up. But I like what you said. David Crosby, whom we just lost this past week, said was once asked, you know, what's your favorite song of all the songs you've written? And he said the next one. So it's kind of the same kind of thing we were talking about. Well, according to Nicholas Jennings' biography of Lightfoot, he was working, as you said, on this first album for the Reprise label in his house on Blythewood Road in Toronto. He was writing 12 hours a day for 30 days, and he wrote 35 songs in that time, including this one. And he said in the liner notes to the uh, songbook collection, he said, and I'm quoting directly, It's a protest song. I wrote a few protest songs, but I felt it was kind of silly for me to write protest songs being a Canadian. After all, people could say, what the hell is a Canadian doing protesting against an American problem? It's tantamount to cashing in on a sensitive American situation. But I decided to do it in a subtle way. I think this one really worked, though, because I knew what I was talking about. Three quarters of the way through it, I hit on the core statement, war is not the answer and young men should not die. Everything I say before that leads up to that observation. It just works, end quote. So I think you're right that he had a certain sensitivity about it. The word America is not mentioned. The word Vietnam is not mentioned. So in that sense, it is transferable to a few different contexts. Now, The historical context, and I teach history for a living. I didn't live this history, and I don't know if you did either. But America is terribly divided in 1969 and 1970. There's just been the assassination of MLK. And 2023. And in 2023, certainly, but for somewhat different reasons. The uh, assassinations of MLK and Bobby Kennedy... The Vietnam War, Richard Nixon's been elected on this idea that I have a secret plan to end the war, which we know now was bogus. Shortly after he gets inaugurated, he decides to bomb Cambodia after he says, I'm going to stop the war, and here we are widening the war. This is one month before the invasion of Cambodia, and then a few days after that, you're going to have the killing of students at Kent State. Don't forget that before his election, LBJ had a peace plan, and Nixon found a way to veto it. Correct. He was able to get messages to the North Vietnamese through some contacts he had in country saying, you know, hold on, you're going to get a better deal from us than you would from Johnson, which is full of intrigue. We won't go into it right now, but that's true. Now, Canada did not participate officially in the Vietnam War. They did send troops over to try to keep the peace and to hold the border after the Paris Peace Accords were signed in 1973. Not being Canadian myself, I don't know if I missed anything with that particular aspect of Canada being involved, not being involved. Did I get it? Well, how can I explain it? We are a lovely country uh, with our own problems like any other country, but we are spectators of what goes on south of the border. You're 10 times our population. You are our largest trading partner. If it wasn't for your defense strategy, most Canadians would probably have been talking Russian by now. So I think we have to not detach the 
symbiotic relationship between Canada and the U.S. It's always been there, as it still is. Many of us have family and close friends on both sides of the border. Uh, I have a second home in Vermont, so I'm there every weekend. But going back to those years, I lived through the Kennedy assassination and the King assassination. It was traumatic, even for a Canadian. We weren't part of it, but we watched the U.S. news. We read the U.S. newspapers and we saw what was happening. It was devastating. And we saw a country ripped apart by a war that, as we now can all confirm, should never have been fought. It was a mistake right. from the outset. And it resonated on Canadians. I was in undergrad studies in university. There were draft dodgers and deserters yeah. in my class. You, you could not know these people. I, I worked at a summer camp for two summers. There were American people my age who came up to work as counselors in a summer camp. And I remember the lottery, the ping pong balls. Mm -hmm. These guys were sitting there and their whole life could have vanished if they got the wrong number written on a ping pong ball. Mm -hmm. It was horrific. It was scary for us to watch, but mostly we felt so bad for, for the people who were ensnarled in this terrible nightmare. You've said so many important things with what goes on with there. I mean, the, the symbiotic relationship, and I feel that too. My grandmother was from Montreal. So I consider myself to have some very distant roots in Canada. I've never spent any time there. The presence of the draft dodgers and the deserters and people who they would get out of Vietnam or they couldn't be found. But on the other hand, up until Jimmy Carter was president, they couldn't go home either. Mm -hmm. And so that was something else that probably played into their experiences. Although I have no concept of what life was like and what the differences were between the U.S. and Canada in the late 60s, early 70s, but it was certainly a, a detachment. And I can only imagine what it would have been to observe that and to comment on it, but to comment on it publicly the way Lightfoot did with Black Day in July, which was not especially about Vietnam, and then about this, which is also not especially about Vietnam, mm -hmm. is I would think that he was in a distinct position where he might get some criticism, but on the other hand, he had he just had to be very, very careful about the commentary that he was yeah. making. Yeah, for better or for worse, one of the Canadian traits is that we don't wear our hearts on our sleeve when it comes to politics. We're not as political, or if we are, we cover it up, which I'm not sure if that's good or bad, but it's just the reality. And that affected Gordon, I'm sure, when he wrote this song. He said, I'm not going to be in their face like I was in Black Day in July, although I thought that was a great song. Then I'm going to do something subtle. And he feels that it's more about the war than the generation gap. I sometimes listen to it and I say, this is a, an anti-war protest song, very subtly presented by a small town Canadian boy. And sometimes I look at it and I say, no, 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 this goes much broader. It, it, it's, it's a youth versus, versus older people generation gap. And I guess that's the beauty of a song lyrics or poetry is that it can be open to interpretation. The beauty of this song is that we can sit here and debate what it's about. We'll be right back to our conversation with Gerald Candestin about Sit Down Young Stranger. But first, a word from a podcast partner or two. 
Have you ever taken a great high school history class? If you have, then you'd probably agree that the one thing that made it so enjoyable was your teacher, and understandably so. At their best, history teachers are vibrant storytellers, leading you on a gripping, fun, fantastic learning journey. But sadly, we know it can be pretty difficult to continue that journey after graduation, with no one there to be your entertaining tour guide through the world of dense, obscure historical research. Fortunately, 20 Minute History is here to help with that. It's the new podcast that aims to be your very own high school history teacher for everything you didn't learn in high school. Come join us as we explore commonly unknown histories in our informative, engaging, and amusing 20-minute episodes. It's 20-Minute History, out now on all your podcasting platforms. As kids, we were a blank sheet of paper with no life experience. And now we are paper balls full of perfect imperfections. Join me on the Grown Up Podcast as I explore these imperfections with you and occasional guests to give a different perspective on life that will make you think just a little deeper. Along the way, we celebrate independence by catching the waves of independent musicians with the now segment better known as Naturally on a Wave. If you're ready to smooth your imperfections so you can show up for yourself, then search Grown Up, look for the perfectly and perfect paper ball and press play tune into the grown-up podcast on apple Podcasts, spotify pandora iHeartRadio, and more oh yeah remember to subscribe so you'll never miss an episode one last thing before we dive into the lyrics is that the first time i heard this i was taken back to me coming home from college in early 1991 when the united states was involved in Kuwait. Now, my parents and I happen to be on the same page with that. I was not in any danger of being drafted, but I could see myself if I had been just a couple of years removed from that. And if you had moved my parents a few degrees to the right, that might have been a conversation I would have had with them. And so in that sense, the song could be played in different contexts and it may be people like myself heard that song in 1991 or 2002 and felt like it was resonating with them in a way. So let's start talking about the lyrics a little bit. That first chunk, which I read as we were starting today, this is the son narrating. This is something that we're going to see is the perspective really changes back and forth throughout all of this. And it would have been a little cliched for Gordon to have done this in two different voices or with two different hands, but it starts off with the kid giving his perspective, but it's not the only one we're going to hear. They say you've been out wandering. Sit down, young stranger. Tell us who you are. Now it's the mother talking and she's saying, well, come in, son. You know, it's great to see you after however long it's been. I'm not sure who they is. They say you've been wandering. They say you've traveled far. Who do you think they are in this song? I think they is just sort of a fictitious um, person. They being, well, they say you've been out. I don't think it's the friends of their son or the relatives. I think it's just they could have said, you say you've been out wandering. You say you've traveled far. But they kind of means that that's what people have been saying, that he went away to find himself. So maybe another way of phrasing it would be, we heard that you've been yeah. wandering. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 
the room is all gone misty. My thoughts are all in spin. So he's kind of building up to this moment where he's got to give an account for himself. And maybe he's really nervous about it. I think he's actually almost certain that he's kind of nervous about this. Sit down and tell us where you've been back to the mother. Then to him, I've been up to the mountain and then all the way down to, because I had a million daydreams to keep me satisfied. And then we get to this little guitar interlude, which leads us into the second half of the song. He's narrating in general terms about what he's been up to. There's nothing particularly devious or deep about this from what I can tell. Maybe he's trying to win their approval a little bit because he's saying, I no one questioned me. I never had a dollar that I didn't earn with pride as opposed to saying, hey, well, I've been sponging off people. And then as it modulates from, I think it's the key of G to the key of A or maybe from the key of A to the key of B. Now the father is jumping in and he's saying, will you gather daydreams or will you gather wealth? And the impression that I got from this is that he's saying, you've wasted your time. All you did was go out and gather daydreams and you have nothing else to show for your, yourself. There's no value to what you've done. Am I on track yeah, with that? I think you're right. I, and he musically pairs the modulation up a tone. The song gets stronger as it, as it goes up a tone, which was very, very effective. And he found the perfect line to pair with the, the A or the B chord, depending on which key you thought he was playing it in. It pairs so beautifully with, and will you gather daydreams or will you gather wealth? You know, it does imply that the conversation's getting a little heated That's and it's right. going to continue to get heated. But it took me a long time to get this impression because he keeps this beautiful melody going on. So you don't get the impression if you listen to it the first time. Yeah, the modulation's a nice trick. A lot of folk singers do that. But I never got the impression that that indicated that the temperature of the room was going up. I always got that it was just a nice little musical thing. And now I can see why he did that. How can you find your fortune when you cannot find yourself? Now the son is coming back at his dad. The conversation's getting a little bit more into a back and forth. And I get the impression that the son is getting ready to storm out of the house. You know, that he realizes this is a mistake. I shouldn't have come home. And yet then we cut to the omniscient narrator saying, my mother's eyes grow misty. There's a trembling in her hand. So she's saying, sit back down and explain yourself. We don't understand, but the implication is we want to understand. We, we love you. We're your parents. This is emotionally hard for us, but we just don't understand you. So please sit down. Don't get excited. You've been away for a while sit down and tell us what your life plans are. And I think that the son didn't necessarily have life plans. He didn't view it as being necessary to tell them that he's going to go to such a university and take such a course, and he's going to work for so many years and do this. He was a free spirit. And sometimes when you get old, you look back at those days and say, I wasn't free-spirited enough, and maybe more people should be free-spirit. There's nothing wrong with that. I think that it shows that he wanted to be a free-spirit. Don't worry about me. I'll find my place, but I may not find my place by following the same path that my mother and father 
followed and expect me to follow. Yeah. And we don't get any sense that they have an agenda for him either, except no. that he's supposed to do what they did, which is you grow right. up, you get an education, you go to work and you raise children. And this is also sort of the zeitgeist, isn't it? I mean, that there was a certain permissiveness or you were permitted to be a free spirit in the late 60s, early 70s in a way that when I came of age, you really weren't permitted to do. And certainly when my parents came of age, this was unheard of. You know, this is just the way things are. You go on with your life. And that was the mentality, at least that my well, folks had. Again, our, our parents had lived through depressions and world wars and some of them were, were, were immigrants or their parents were immigrants to the U.S. or, or to Canada. We lived the same experience here. And they, they led a different and perhaps more difficult life. Our generation led a far more blessed life, but we nevertheless had items and matters that concerned us. And there was nothing wrong with saying war is not the answer. Young men should not die to someone who lived through World War II, that's heresy. But well, to someone who was living through Vietnam, well, that wasn't heresy. That, that was correct. I have to quote David Crosby again, and it's appropriate that we're doing this because this is our first full week without the Cros. Yeah, we, uh, lost the, we lost a great one. We did. But he said, in looking back at the 60s, he said, we were right about civil rights we were right that peace is better than war. We turned out to be not right about drugs and that we could go all sorts of directions with that. We won't right now. So the mother, maybe she's upset because my mother eyes grow misty. There's a trembling in her hand. Maybe she's clearly upset. Maybe she has some sort of sign of old age or palsy or a tremor or something like that. So maybe he's sitting back down thinking, okay, well, I don't want to upset mom. So I'm going to sit back down and continue this conversation. Now, the dad gets back and says, will you try and tell us you've been too long at school? And he goes through things that the father probably thinks are kind of hackneyed. Yeah, well, I've heard all this before. Yeah, yes, been to, we don't need knowledge. Mm -hmm. Power is corrupt. Yeah, da, da, da. All those kinds of things. Now the son is saying the answer are not easy for souls are not reborn. Kind of a theological turn. I'm yeah. not really sure where the stream. Of I was. I, I. I must say, I'm always a little surprised when the crown of peace and the crown of thorns and Jesus had an answer. Gordon was never, never religious about his music, and I don't think he's a religious person. Although he was raised in a small Canadian town and began his singing career in, in a church choir, so he certainly understood religion, but. This was the first and last time that you ever really heard a religious set of lyrics in one of his songs. Yeah. And I think it's not an observation that I had ever made, but you're right. He really doesn't use a whole lot of imagery, mm -hmm. traditional religious imagery. Mm -hmm. Certainly he's a transcendentalist because he does talk about Mother Nature. But in terms of traditional religion, no, this may be the only reference that's ever made. I'd have to look back at all his lyrics, but I think you're right. To wear the crown of peace, you must wear the crown of thorns. Now the dad is coming back with some sort of religious stuff. And then the son using Christ as the pacifist, gentle Jesus, as opposed to the Jesus that we see upsetting the money changers in the, the temple. 
how could he wish them well? And then the parlor now is empty. And I'm thinking what has happened here is that the parents have just decided, okay, this conversation's over. Dad has said, there's no use talking to this moron. I've got work to do. And the mother is saying, well, there's nothing else I can do. So I'm just going to go and read my Bible or do something that may be well-intended, but really is not very effectual with that relationship at that point. And maybe he's realizing at this moment that this is the reason he left home in the first place, that his parents are caught up in their own lives or their own mythology. Hard work is the answer. That's a typical immigrant slogan. Or faith is the answer. Okay, my own religious stuff is going. So it's almost anti-religious in a way. My mother's gone to pray. It's kind of like they don't understand me. So what does my mother do when she can't understand me and doesn't want to see the other side of life? She goes into her room and finds some obscure section of the Bible and reads it and prays. Yeah. And he's, it's almost a put down of religion. It did seem a little offhanded. And I don't think Gordon's not particularly religious in his music. I don't think he's irreverent either. But it was kind of, well, this is all she has. She has to fall back on rather than trying to understand me. She's just going to say, well, I'm going to and you could say these days I'm going to log on and talk to pastor thus and so. There's rockets in the meadows and ships out on the sea. The answer's in a forest carved upon a tree. John loves Mary. Does anyone love me? And he's left wondering whether his family really loves him. They're supposed to. His mother is trying to. His father maybe doesn't have any idea about how to love his child. And it did just make me wonder who are John and Mary. And they're stereotypical Western names, but I couldn't help but wondering, are John and Mary the parents? John loves Mary. You know, years ago, they were on a date and they carved this heart into the tree. You know, John loves Mary. But then he comes back to saying, does anyone love me? Do my parents love me? Does anybody understand? And I may be completely off, but that's the only thing I could land on with John loves Mary. I, I never really thought it that way. I, I always thought that John and Mary were just two uh, stereotypical characters who had a picnic in the park and found a tree and a penknife and carved their initials or, or whatever, an art on the tree. That's what I always thought. But you, you raise a good point. It, it could very well be that that's his father and mother. And my father loves my mother. Do they have time to love me? In a meaningful um, way, do they have time to love me? Yeah. yeah. I know, mean, in a... retrospect, you can see he did love him. And this was their way of showing their love. Obviously, his parents care deeply about him, or they wouldn't have had this conversation in the first place. Right. And then the song ends kind of abruptly, but I think he'd said everything that needed to be said at that point. Yeah. We'll be right back to our conversation with Gerald Candestin about Sit Down, Young Stranger. But first, a word from a podcast partner or two. Radio is so much different than it was in the 80s. We had it all. The music, the movies, the DJs, and morning shows. Back to the 80s Radio is a show from the 80s in podcast form. We bring the memories from that awesome decade back. Join Toscano and Chang every Friday as they take you on a ride back in time, sharing their experiences and laughs. 
Stop on by and discover some of the wacky things this crazy duo comes up with. They talk about it all, the good, the bad, and the ugly of the greatest decade. Don't miss the greatest 80s podcast in the world. Back to the 80s radio. Hello, I'm JT, a lifelong student of the paranormal and the unexplained. I've spent over 35 years researching and learning about a wide range of subjects, from UFOs and cryptids to ghosts and the supernatural, from hidden and lost treasures to mankind's mysterious past, and all other things mysterious and Fortean. Each week, I'll bring you some relevant and interesting articles in this genre, as well as a different topic, some you may be familiar with, but many you most likely will never have known existed. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the ride. And let me be your tour guide as we explore the unexplained on the paranormal sun. Well, the song did appear on the album of the same name in 1970. It was his fifth original album. It was his first album for reprise, as you said. I believe it was the best-selling original album of his career. Yes, it was. And we know that the album was renamed If You Could Read My Mind after that single made the charts, and there's a whole backstory about that. But you said a little bit about the record deal, and I just wanted to make sure that I got this, that Albert Grossman who was managing Dylan famously and other acts, got $1 million advance? Yeah, it was, it was unprecedented at the time. Gordon had recorded with United Artists, and he did four studio albums. Then he was fed up with them because he felt that he wasn't getting U.S. distribution as he should, and I guess Albert Grossman convinced them of that. And I guess they were right, and... He didn't want to give them another studio album full of original music. So he recorded Sunday Concert, where there were a few original songs. I think there's Yarmouth Castle and two or three others uh, that were original songs, but the rest weren't, because I, I think he may have had some of the songs already under his belt that made it to Sit Down, Young Stranger, and he kept them for this album. And one of the important songs is Me and Bobby McGee. He... In the summer, I think it was June of 1969, Johnny Cash replaced Glenn Campbell during the summer months. It was the Johnny Cash summer show. And on the, the first show, he had Dylan. And the second show, he had Gordon Lightfoot. Mm -hmm. And the, the story goes that Gordon Lightfoot was invited to a guitar-pulling party at Johnny Cash's house, either the night before or the night after the show at the Ryman Auditorium in, in Nashville. And Johnny introduced him to this. Uh, he, he was up till two months before he was, he was a janitor at Columbia Recording Studios, a guy named Chris Christopherson. Right. Christopherson played this song and Gordon said, can I record that song? And Chris said, absolutely. And that was going to be Gordon's big, big single. Uh, he got a call from Chris Christopherson just before he was going to record the album. And Chris said, Roger Miller is down on his luck. And he's asked me to give him this song. And I need you to do me a favor and wait till he releases it. Gordon did that. Roger Miller made it, made it into a number one hit. Although I still think that Lightfoot's version of the song is terrific. And he really 
used the same chords and the modulation, which he had never used in song, he took that off of me and Bobby McGee. It's the same chords and the same modulation. I knew about the modulation, but I didn't realize that the whole chord structure yeah. was the same. And I have to agree with you that Gordon's version is by far superior. And it is, with all due respect to Ms. Joplin, I think it was much, much better than the version that Janice did. And that just my own opinion, other people may disagree with me. The song was not released as a single, as you said, which I kind of understand and kind of don't. It is a little bit long on narrative, and that may not have been what the market was looking for at that particular time, but I think they should have at least thrown it out there. But they already had three singles, so that was the way it was going to be. The album went to number 20 in Australia, uh, number 8 in Canada, number 12 in the U.S., and number 6 in the U.K. That's the first time he had had a record in the charts in the United Kingdom. So yeah, obviously it was a pretty effective album. You mentioned a little bit about the musical influences of it. Are there any other musical footnotes to this, or is there a particular portion of the music in the recording of Sit Down, Young Stranger that you really like? Well, it's the first album that he had his new bass guitarist, Rick Haynes, who has been with him uh, since 1968. Rick joined the band, and this was the first studio album that he played with Rick Haynes. And of course, Red Shake, which with all respect to Terry Clements and Carter Lancaster, who were and are fantastic, respectively, uh, Red Shake had a magic that he brought to Gordon's music that was just incredible. And this song was only them. Warner Brothers threw everything at this album. They brought him down to Los Angeles. They made all the uh, wrecking crew musicians in, in Los Angeles available to him. They brought in John Sebastian and, and Ry Cooter. I mean, if you look at the names, but on this particular cut, it's just Gordon, Rick, and Red. There were a few, three or four um, musicians that uh, Warner brought in for it. Okay. Well, that would make sense because they had them there. So, yeah. and they were certainly talented. You know, He's... up to this point, he had been recording in Nashville. So this was a complete change of venue for him. Oh, yeah. And you hear about when Dylan goes to uh, Muscle Shoals for the first time, bringing all these guys from New York and the mm -hmm. kind of culture clash that you had there when he was recording the Blonde on Blonde album. So probably the same kind of thing happened here. You mentioned Red Shea's fills on it, which to me are my favorite part of the thing. Is there another musical aspect of Sit Down, Young Stranger, the song that you particularly liked? I like the way he begins it. I'm a guitarist and I've played this song a million times. He plays the G position and he just hammers on the low E chord when he begins, which is the beginning of the song. The it's, F sharp to the G. Yeah, it's a nice little riff to begin the song. I like that. I love Red Shea's accompaniment. It's just so subtle. Red Shea always said that he wasn't a lead guitarist. He was just another guitarist and he just wanted their guitars to sound as one did that beautifully and i would agree with you that that was that was a perfect characterization of the interplay between gordon and red with that yeah that particular the very first time i heard that actually was on joan Baez's uh billy rose prison trilogy not mm -hmm. on uh, sit down young stranger but they were both very effective well, Gordon has played this song 80 times in concert, 
The very first time was in Buffalo at a place called Kleinen's Music Hall. Uh, and that was in October of 69. So that's timely for what we're talking about here. The last time he played it was at the Wilson Auditorium in Bozeman, Montana in November of 2010. And he has packed it in and not played it since. But that's not to say that he he couldn't have in other contexts. I, I hope he does not have to play it again in a zeitgeist like being, okay, well, hey, we're at war again. So this is what young men might be going through. And then there are only two official covers that I can find of this. And one was by the country gentleman and the other was Clinton Charlton. And I'm wondering, did I miss any? And if I haven't, have you heard either of those? I haven't even heard of those two, but I'm going to look them up. <laughs> okay. Uh, as soon as I hear this, I'm going to look them up and, and I'll find them and download them on Apple Music and listen to them because I think I've got maybe 48 versions of Early Morning Rain and about 35 versions, if you could read my mind. So I like to hear what people do with his music. But no, I haven't heard any covers of this song, which is strange. You know, speaking as one who has played this song also, and I know that you're a guitarist and you've played it, I wouldn't touch it in terms of recording it. If I were in a position to do a recording, and I'm not, but if I were in a position to do a recording of music, I wouldn't touch this because I don't think anybody can do it better than Gordon can, as is the case with most of his music, quite frankly. Jerry, are there any other thoughts you wanted to add to our discussion? I mean, we've covered a lot about this song because there's a lot to say. Anything else that you wanted to say about it as we're wrapping up? You know, I had an interesting conversation with him I had the luck of being invited to a uh, dinner honoring the president at the time of Air Canada and Gordon Lightfoot in New York City at the Canadian Club. And it was a, a black tie affair and Gordon was there with his wife. And I kind of know her because I've been backstage to see him and she is with him all the time. She's she's like his personal valet. She, sure. she follows him around to make sure he doesn't get hurt. Been, he's been injury prone in the past five, six years. Yeah. And I went up to him and I said, Gordon, why don't you play my favorite song, which is Affair on 8th Avenue? Why don't you ever play that song? And he said, it's just too sad. I don't do sad songs anymore. I like to do fun songs. And this that's probably why today you won't hear him sing a song. It's, it's reminiscent of a, of a sad era in his, in his life. Well, and a sad era in history, let's yeah. face it. Yeah. Um, you know, and it's a beautiful song, but I can understand why, because it's probably too contemplative as opposed to, as you say, a toe tapper or things like that. Jerry, where can people find you online if they want to continue the conversation? I have a Facebook page okay. where they can, they can always go. Um, I play semi-regularly with a bunch of guys and we call ourselves band and uh, I like to do Gordon Lightfoot. Leonard Cohen, uh, Bob Dylan, that, that's that's my genre. Um, so sometimes I post those things, but believe me, I'm just an amateur when it comes to that. But if people want to talk to me on Facebook, please, I'd love to meet you. Well, thank you, Jerry, for taking the time today. This is a song that some people have not heard, but I think everybody needs to if they want to understand uh, Lightfoot's development as a songwriter. So uh, this was a lot of fun for me, and I hope I have you back on the show again soon. Thank you so much. And thanks for listening, everybody. 
If you like this well enough to listen to the whole thing, tell somebody about it. Carefree Highway Revisited is on Apple, Spotify, Acast, or wherever you get your listening matter. Our website is www.lightfootpodcast.com. I'd like to make a special request for you to visit my Patreon page. I love this show so much, and I want to keep it going, and you're in a position to help. Please head over to www.patreon.com slash carefreehighwayrevisited. A dollar or two a month is all I ask. You can reach me, Mike Messner, at teachermike72 at gmail.com. Well, our next episode is going to feature my guest, Will Kruger, and he and I will be talking about 16 Miles to Seven Lakes. That is from Gordon Lightfoot's first album from 1966, and that episode will be coming out in late February. Until then, for Jerry Candiston, this is Mike Messner reminding you, run for the roses, but don't forget to stop and smell them. We'll see you next time. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.